Like a lot of parents, by the end of Christmas Day, when our kids were little, I would often be frustrated. Not because of dashed expectations or family drama. I would be frustrated because my kids seemed happier playing with the boxes in which their toys came rather than the toy themselves. All the time, all the effort spent trying to find just the right gift and they're just as happy with a cardboard box. I think sometimes you and I can make the same mistake when it comes to Christmas. We can be distracted by all the wrapping of Christmas and sometimes miss the actual point of Christmas. This morning, I want to take a look at some of the things that maybe we have accumulated to our understanding of Christmas. I want to dispel a couple of Christmas myths so that we can be focused tightly on the thing that God wants us to be focused on this Christmas day. So first, what are some of the things that almost like barnacles on an old ship, you know, that suddenly get connected to our understanding of Christmas and really become part of the popular imagination about Christmas? What are some things that maybe we need to move past? Well, look at verse 7 with me. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. How many of you, like me, grew up knowing that the unnamed character in the Christmas story was that evil innkeeper who didn't let Mary and Joseph in to stay the night so that Jesus could be born at least in the relative comfort of a Motel 6? I mean, come on, at least get us into a someplace that has a roof over their head. Maybe we've even heard some sermons that have warned us not to be like the innkeeper who refuses Jesus. Instead, you need to welcome Jesus into your heart. Well, here's the problem. That innkeeper is nowhere to be found in Luke chapter 2 or any of the other gospel accounts. The only reason that we even think that there is an innkeeper is because of the word here in verse 7 that is translated in. But when you start thinking about the culture and the hospitality of the ancient Middle East, the importance that it laid on the idea of family unity, well, it almost becomes unthinkable that Mary and Joseph would have been turned away to have baby Jesus in some far-off stable away from all of their family and friends. What actually does the Bible tell us? Well, Luke, interestingly, later on in his gospel, will use that same word that's translated here in verse 7 as in. He will use that same word to describe a guest room in someone's house. So it's probably better to think of Mary and Joseph not wandering the streets of Bethlehem, knocking on doors and having people turn them away. No, instead... Think of them joining together with all of the rest of their family, and maybe this is happening in your home too, where every available space has been turned into a bedroom. And at least here in Bethlehem, where people and animals often shared the same structure, 
They probably let the goats and the cow off out into the pasture and took that particular room and turned it into a guest room. Unfortunately, our nativity sets in our homes don't help us here. You don't have Bessie the cow and, you know, Harold the goat standing there next to baby Jesus trying to eat the hay out of his manger. No, instead, that space was made into an extra room for Mary and Joseph to safely give birth to Jesus. The the paradox, the point of Luke's narrative here is the paradox. Where is Jesus born? This new king that's being born, he isn't born in a palace in Jerusalem. He's born in a backwater town of Bethlehem that used to be an important town, had really fallen out of importance by the time that Jesus was born. And he wasn't born in a palace attended to by many servants. No, he was born in a room normally reserved for animals, a stable was the new king's first throne room. What else? What else do we sometimes imagine is happening with the Christmas story that is more of an imagination than what our scriptures actually tell us? Well, let's go on to verse 8 and look at these shepherds. It has become increasingly common to talk about the shepherds as unlikely recipients of the good news of Jesus' birth. We're told that the shepherds were among the lowest classes of Jewish society. They were downtrodden. They were despised. Uh, Supposedly, they were hated because they were generally thieves. And then we also read in some accounts that they couldn't even give testimony in Jewish courts because no one thought they could tell the truth. So why would angels go to these shepherds and make the announcement, giving them the privilege of being the first witnesses? This seems completely at odds. Well, I wish that this was true because it's such a great preaching point. But it's not. At least it wasn't true at the time of Jesus' birth. The idea that shepherds couldn't give testimony in court or that they were as a class of people generally thieves and brigands, well, that's all based on claims that appear about 500 years after the birth of Christ. In fact, when you think about shepherds and scripture, shepherds are relatively positive images in scripture. Church leaders in the New Testament are described using shepherding terms. Can you imagine how problematic it would be if church leaders were described with a word picture that recalled thieves and liars? It's probably not what we want to try to communicate to our congregations. Think about the kings of Israel, like David, or the patriarchs, like Abraham. They were shepherds. Or they're described as shepherds in their life. Shepherding is an important motif. It's a positive motif in the Bible. So why, though, do the angels go to the shepherds to make the first announcement of Jesus being born? Well, even though the shepherds weren't downcast, even though the shepherds weren't thieves or liars, the shepherds were common. They were an everyday kind of person. 
Think of them that night. What were they doing? They were at work. They were doing the things that they had to do every day in order to make a living. They went out that night not expecting that evening to be any different than any evening that they had ever worked with their flocks. They represent everyone. They're not among the rich and the powerful to whom we would expect an announcement like this to be made. Instead, they are humble representatives of the common people of Israel. And just like their normal everyday life was completely overturned when the angels came and made an announcement to them, so also it's the normal everyday people of Israel whose lives are going to be overturned when Jesus comes on the scene. So when we see this announcement made to the shepherds, it's just one more detail in the Christmas story that is supposed to make us wonder about God's purposes. It's unexpected, but by its very nature, we are given a glimpse into the kind of king that is coming and the kind of kingdom that he is bringing. I think sometimes, again, in our popular imagination, we can conjure up parts of the Christmas story that just aren't true. And when we do that, we're focused on things that actually distract us from what God wants us to see in this narrative of Jesus being born. So do you see what God wants you to see? Go back to verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Why does the birth of Jesus Christ begin with a reference to a Roman Caesar? Now, partly, I'm glad that it does, because I think sometimes, particularly in modern 21st century America, a lot of people will say, oh, I'm so glad that that faith works for you. I'm glad it provides you great meaning and, and, and purpose in your life. And unfortunately, even as Christians, we can sometimes speak about faith in such a way that it is completely divorced from the historic character of Christianity. Christianity is a historic religion. If this isn't true, then Christianity shouldn't be believed. It doesn't matter what kind of personal benefit Jesus is to you or what kind of warm feelings you have when you think about him. If he wasn't born when Caesar Augustus decreed a, a, a census, then we've got a problem. But I think that Luke is doing more than just locating the birth of Jesus in its historic context. Caesar Augustus is an interesting guy. His original name was Gaius Octavius. If you grew up reading about Roman history, you probably knew him as Octavian. He was Julius Caesar's nephew. Many of you remember Julius Caesar was murdered. And after Caesar was murdered, Gaius Octavius found out that he had been essentially adopted by Julius Caesar, made his heir... And the kingdom passed to him. So when he became Caesar, the Roman Senate gave him this title, Augustus. That's not his first name, that's his title. 
He is Augustus, which means highly revered, majestic. From then on, he was known as Caesar Augustus. And he's really the Caesar who turned Rome into the empire that we think of today. Over the course of his long rule, over 40 years, he boasted that he had brought peace to the entire world. He styled himself as the son of God. The Roman Senate even decided to restart the calendar so the first day of the year was his birthday. Augustus, people said, was the savior of the world. He was its king. He was the Lord. People even worshipped him as a god. The penny starts to drop. Now we begin to see why Luke decides to begin the story of Jesus' birth with a reference to a Roman Caesar. Luke is making a political statement. The exalted claims made by a Caesar far off in Rome will soon be undermined by the birth of a new king. And that means that the legitimacy of all the world's rulers is overthrown by a baby born in Bethlehem. Doesn't matter if it's Caesar in far off Rome or Herod there in Jerusalem or, dare I say it, even you and me. And our thinking that we're in charge of our own lives, that we make all of our own decisions, that we are the Caesar that determines the scope and the direction of our life. Augustus never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. But within a century or so, his successors had not only heard about Jesus, they were taking steps to obliterate his followers. And within three centuries, the emperor himself became a Christian. Do you see what God sees? It's not just the birth of a baby. It's the clash of kingdoms. One author I like rewrote the first line of Silent Night, which we're going to sing here in a moment. I was unsuccessful at convincing George that we should sing these new words. Silent Night, Violent Night, Hell and Heaven meet to fight. On the one hand, you have the majesty and the power of Rome. And on the other hand, you have the weakness, the insignificance, and the vulnerability of a baby born on Rome's far eastern frontier. What does this have to do with you today, this Christmas morning? The angels appeared to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. You know, normally we think of them as this kind of beautiful choir of angels standing in formation, all singing in harmony. Actually, what I want you to think of is a column of artillery. These are soldiers, the heavenly hosts, the army of God has shown up on earth to make an announcement. You and I would probably normally think that the announcement is that God is finally going to war 
He's tired of everything that has gone wrong. And so now he's sending his army of angels in as the first wave of an invasion. No, the angels say that they are bringing good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. A new king has come. We sing, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. But he doesn't come as an invading force. Even though the emperors of this world who think they run the show, they will all be overthrown. But the declaration is one of peace. That God has taken it on himself to declare peace to all hostilities. That can be odd, right? Particularly if you're still ready to fight. If you've still got a gun in your hand and the person that you're fighting against says, no, I declare peace, I actually won. You stand back and you go, wait, what? That, that doesn't make sense. But that's exactly what's happening this night when the angels appear before the shepherds. The coming of King Jesus changed the world. Everyone is living on borrowed time. And now to everyone who had once been an enemy, the angels say, you're invited to join the victory parade. You're invited to join with the angels in a joyful response to God's great work. Give glory to God in the highest because the birth of his son has brought peace. Well, Eric, that's just the problem. I'm here this morning and I try to put on a good show, but I can't see that peace. I don't have peace in my life. There's no peace in my family. You turn on the news and it feels like the world is just a breath away from descending into war and chaos. What kind of difference did Jesus really make? Friends, this is kind of the way that we look at the world, and honestly, it's one of our biggest problems. We think it's the things that we can see that are the biggest problems in the world. We think it's the things that we have some responsibility for, that we can control, that we can manipulate, that those are the most important things in the world. But God says the greatest problem that the world ever had had to be solved first before anything else could even be touched. On the hills outside of Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, God declared victory. He said that he was at peace with you. And so the angels Declaration is actually an invitation for you to lay down your arms and to return to the God who loved you even while you were his sworn enemy. It's an opportunity for you to join not in the parade of vanquished enemies who are being hauled off to some prison somewhere. No, it's an opportunity for you to join the celebration. 
Christ the Savior is born. Redeeming grace has dawned. It's an invitation for you to sing out with the Apostle Paul who writes in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't you see that what Christmas really means is that God's victory is also your victory. Victory over sin. Victory over death. Victory over sickness and sorrow. Victory over every injustice and every evil thing. That which we could never accomplish on our own. Frankly, that which we were complicit in ruining. That has finally and forever been put right because of a baby born in Bethlehem. So what will your response be today? Friends, my prayer is that your response is to join the celebration, to feast and sing, to laugh and love. Today is Christmas. It's God's victory day. It's your victory day too. Let's pray. Well, Father, how odd it is for us to think that our defeat is actually our victory. That being vanquished, we have been exalted. Father, help us to see what you see. That our greatest problems aren't the problems out there, but it's our problem with you. Our sin and our rebellion that has put us at odds with you. And help us to see this Christmas day that in the birth of Jesus Christ, you have declared peace. Peace with all of us who once were your enemies and now you invite to be your friends. Father, may all of us use today as a day to celebrate your victory, our victory, our new life in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.